verse 15 to verse 22 together. Okay? In the count of three. One, two, three. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but that parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was there because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of Bali harvest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this story, Lord, that was written many, many years ago. And the fact that we can read it today is because you have preserved that for us. And if you preserve that for us, that means it is your word for us, God. So I pray that you interpret this story, Lord, this beautiful story of Ruth, and I pray that it will speak to our life, Lord. So some of us might be in a situation that is similar to what they experience right now, Lord. And yet the same God who is faithful to Naomi and Ruth is faithful to His people today. And that is our hope. So we want to see you, Jesus. We want to encounter you through our study of the Word together. So speak to us. Because my Word is limited, but you are the only one who can turn my limited Word into your unlimited Word that created existence out of nothing. So speak to us. We are ready to listen to your word. In the name of mighty Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right. Um, the book of Ruth. Okay, it's going to be fun. Today is the first sermon out of four. So we're going to do four sermons of the book of Ruth because there's four chapters on the book of Ruth. Oh, you're here. Awesome. Okay. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you are named Ruth in this place? Either your name is Ruth or your Christian name is Ruth. Can, can I see your hand? Okay, just want to be sure, okay, today I'm going to mention your name a lot, but just be sure I'm not talking about you, okay, just, just be careful, okay? Um, if in, there's an Indo word for it, okay, there's no English word for that, don't, don't, don't bapper, okay, no bapper in here. But I love the book of Ruth. I mean, how many of you, this is, will be your first time actually studying or listening to the story of Ruth? Can I see your hand if this is your, going to be your first time? Okay, there's a couple of you, okay, this will be your first time studying the book of Ruth, that's good, that's awesome. Like, one of the reasons why I love the book of Ruth is because this book is a wonderful story. I mean, it has tragedy, loss, despair, hope, romance, loyalty, and most importantly, a happy ending. Okay? So the book of Ruth has a happy ending. So here's one I encourage you guys. Okay? Throughout this series, you do not need to take your wife, your girlfriend, or your potential girlfriend to watch a movie. All you have to do, just bring them to Roxy International, and that will suffice. Because the book of Ruth is a wonderful, wonderful story, okay? 
This is like the holy chick flick pretty much, right? So um, in the next couple of weeks, RSI will be a, a very, very good hotspot for dating. So if you want to bring your potential girlfriend, it is a good time for you to do so. Now, I think a lot of time when we look at the book of Ruth, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I think a lot of time we interpret the book of Ruth, it's like this, you know, finding your boys or finding your Ruth. Anyone heard that before? Like, you know, that's a very, very catchy title. I was going to title my sermon, I mean, the series, Finding Your Boys or Finding Your Root, in expecting, you know, expecting that a lot of singles will show up, right? That's a good way to get a single to show up to church. Even though it's true, even though it's true, and a lot of time when we preach, and when people like me preach the book of Ruth, they will say this, like, stuff like this. Single girls, be like Ruth, and you will meet your boys. Or, single guys, be like Boaz, and you will meet your root, okay? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I do hope if you're single, you will meet your root or Boaz in this place. And that's my hope. Okay, it's better for you to meet your root and Boaz at church rather than at a club. But I think if we want to be very, very clear, the book of Ruth is so much deeper than talking about a love story. It is a love story, but ultimately the book of Ruth is a story of providence, now, before I tell you the definition of providence, let me explain to you what I mean first. Can we agree that every action has a consequence? Do you, you believe on that? Every cause has effect, correct? Every action has consequence. So we are who we are today because of our decision that we made yesterday. So that means that right now, if you're in church right now, because this morning you make the decision to take shower, put on some clothes, and travel all the way to Rock Center Artaman. Okay? And if you're watching from home, because you'll make the decision to watch from home. So every decision we make has consequence. Is that, is that normal? You agree with that? But it is wrong to think that our life is simply a matter of consequences of our decision. And the book of Ruth will tell us that there's a mysterious X factor that guides everything from behind the scene. There's God at work directing our decision and every event for His good purposes. You and I might not see the hand of God working in our life, but His hand is always the divining elements of our life. Now, John Piper, who just recently released a 780-something pages book on providence, okay, I don't, I don't ask you to read that book, but he gave one of the best statement definition of what providence is, okay? And this is the definition that I'm going to continue to give you every single sermon, okay? This is his definition. Great definition. He says this, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal of the universe, God's providence carries his plan into action, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. Okay? And when you read this, like, yes, this is too much. Okay? I understand. This is Piper's way of describing things. Basically, there's only two words that you need to know. Purposeful sovereignty. Okay? That is the very definition of providence. If you, anyone asks you, what is providence? All you have to do is just give them two words. Purposeful sovereignty. Okay? What does it mean? It means this. For us who love Jesus, for Christians, there's no such thing as random occurrence in our life. Even during the worst of time, God is absolutely sovereign and in control, and He's always constantly, 24 hours, 7 days a week, working to accomplish His good and glorious purpose. His works may not be feasible to us, 
but he's always at work from behind sin. And the book of Ruth actually gives us that glimpse, give us the glimpse of God's hidden work during the worst of time. So if I can sum up my sermon in one sentence, it would be this. Okay? This is my sermon in one sentence. When we think that we are at our lowest, when we think that God no longer cares for us, the truth is that God is preparing us to witness His faithfulness to us. So when you think that you're low, at your lowest point, no one cares about you, God is not there for you. The truth is God is actually preparing you to witness His faithfulness to you. Okay? And in the book of Ruth, we have different characters. And these characters, they have no idea what God is doing in their life. There's no miracle. There's no dream, no vision, nothing supernatural. All they do, all we have in the book of Ruth, is different characters living their ordinary life. And yet, at the same time, the book of Ruth tells us this. There's no such thing as ordinary life. Because behind everything that they do, there's a God who's miserably worked in such a way, without their knowledge, putting their stories together to create one beautiful story. And what God is doing in their life is far greater than they what could have imagined in their lifetime. That is the meaning of providence. You with me on that? Okay. But before we go to the story, let me give you the context of the book of Ruth first. Because if we understand the context, then we understand this is a whole different story than simply a love story. So the book of Ruth is actually happened, the story happened, it says in the day when the judges rule. Now, if any of you ever read the book of Judges, then you know the book of Judges is a very bleak book. I mean, it's a very dark book because what happened in the book of Judges, it, we will find this repetitive cycle. What happened is this. So Israel, they sinned against God, and Israel began to worship other God. And because of that, what happened is God's angry, and then God punished Israel by surrendering them to their enemy. And then because of that, then the Israelites began to pray to God, God, help us, God, help us. And because of that, God responded by raising up judges to deliver Israel from the enemy. Okay, that's the cycle. And you think that the Israel will have learned their lesson. Oh, no. The moment that God raised up judges and delivered them from their enemies, you know what Israel does? They sin against God again. So the cycle being repeated again. So the whole cycle of the book of Judges is very, very dark, where people continue to live in sin. That is why in Judges 21-25, it ends with, with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eye. So that's a very bleak context of the book of Ruth. Now, if we understand the context of the book of Ruth, then you understand that the book of Ruth cannot simply be a holy chick flick. It can't. Because it is written in a very, very dark days. So the question is, why will God put the story of Ruth in the Bible? Or let me rephrase the question. What is it that God tried to teach Israel and us through the book of Ruth? Why will God suddenly zoom in into this love story in the middle of the darkest days of Israel? Let me tell you, we will not find the answer until the last sermon, okay? So you and I will not find the answer until the last sermon of the book of Sirius, uh, the book of Ruth. Whoever the author of the book is, he's brilliant. Because the author of the book will make you think that you know what the story of Ruth is about. And then finally, at the very end, with the last statement of the book, he finally make you, boom, oh my gosh, I've been reading this book wrongly all this time. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Do not flip back to chapter 4. Do not flip forward to chapter 4. I know some of you are like, okay, I'm going to read that last. No, 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 no. Here's what, here's what I want you to do. 
Today, we're not going to touch chapter 2, 3, or 4. We're just going to touch chapter 1. Here's my reason why. I want us to feel the despair of what happened in chapter 1. Because if you don't understand the despair of chapter 1, then you will not understand the beauty of what happened in chapter 2, 3, and 4. Because you and I, we are so accustomed of watching Netflix, where to the point that you know, when the, ending, the movie ends with cliffhanger, the next five seconds, it's already played. The next episode. The problem with this sermon is this. Okay, this is not Netflix. Okay, you have to wait another week for another sermon. Actually, two weeks because I'm not preaching next week. So the book of Ruth will continue in two weeks' time. So, but that's good. So I want you to feel that despair. I want you to live in that tension for two weeks, okay? Because it's, it will be good for us. What I do not want to happen is for us to gloss over because we know the ending, and then after that, oh, I know what's going to happen. It's easy, okay? I don't want that to happen. I want us to feel what Naomi felt, the despair that she felt because she lost everything, okay? I want us to feel that. So here's what I encourage you to do. Do not read ahead tonight, okay? This is the only time in church you hear pastors say, do not read the Bible more, okay? Try not to read ahead, okay? Even though I say this, I'm pretty sure some of you will go home and read ahead tonight. If you do, no spoiler, okay? Just try to feel the tension with us, okay? So today, just chapter one. Let me warn you, we are going to end with a cliffhanger. Is that cool? So every sermon on the book of Ruth will end with a cliffhanger, except last one. Okay, let's get into the story. I separate this chapter into four different parts. The crisis, the choice, the return, the providence. Let's look at the crisis. First one to five. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two this took Moabite's wife. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. If by chance I said Orpah name wrong, and I said Oprah, please understand, because those two are very similar. I tried, even when I tried to preach in my mental, a lot of them I miss Orpah and Oprah, okay? So understand, if I say Oprah, I mean Oprah, not the Oprah that you see on TV. But the story begins by telling us that there is a famine in the land. And you and I need to understand that this famine is not an accident. God has told the people of Israel, listen Israel, if you obey me, then I will give you plenty of wood. But the moment that you disobey me, Israel, I'm going to send famine your way. So that means this, when we understand the context is the book of Judges where Israel continued to sin against God, therefore the famine in here is not an accident, but the famine is actually God's judgment upon the people of Israel. Because they continue to sin, finally God goes, you know what, I'm going to send famine. And the famine here is massive, it's not a small famine, okay? And why do, I, why do we know that the famine is massive? Because there's a play on words that the author used intentionally. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread, okay? And now, this, the story begins by saying this, in the, in the house of bread, there is no bread. So there's a famine throughout the land of Israel to the point that, you know, 
if everybody else have famine, the house of bread should have bread. And yet the house of bread has no bread. That tells us that the famine is massive. And now this is God's judgment upon Israel's sin. And because of that, because of that, you know, they're starving. Now let's be clear. You and I, we have no idea what starving really is. One of the sentences that I say every single Sunday after church, you will hear me say this after church today. What's that statement? Guys, I am starving. It means, guys, it's time to go home. Your pastor is hungry. Okay? If you remain here, the pastor will be hungry and angry. That's not good. Okay? That's what I'm trying to say. But literally, I mean, I have no idea what it means to be starving. You and I don't have a clue what it means to be in famine. So the famine is massive to the point that one family, Elimelech family, finally decided they're going to move from Bethlehem to Moab. And this is a very strange decision. Because Moab is actually one of Israel's sworn enemy. So Israel had a bad history with the Moabites. Let me give you just one example. There was one time the Moabites woman seduced the people of Israel to worship the false god. And because of it, God judged the Israelites, and 24,000 men were killed. So that's why the Moabites and the Israel, they hate one another. So for an Israelite to move to a Moabite, it is very shameful. It is like you're turning your back on God. But due to massive famine, Elimelech decided to take his family to move to Moab. The question was this, is this a right choice? Possibly not. How do we know? Because in three verses, in three verses, the author tells us 10 years worth of tragedy. What happened? First, Elimelech died. Second, their sons marry a foreign Moabite woman. Third, Malon and Kilion died. And fourth, as we're about to find out, the wife has no children. Okay? So in three quick verses, the author tells us there's 10 years worth of tragedy. No detail, no story, no explanation, just tragedy after tragedy. To the point that the author finally intentionally removed Naomi's name and called her what? The woman. As if Naomi lost her identity. Now think about this for a bit. Naomi came to Moab because of her husband's decision. She's not there by choice. And in Moab, her world came crashing down. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. And now she's a stranger in a strange land. And at that time, she's already old. That means she cannot remarry. Because people in those days did not marry for love only. They marry for the sake of having a family. So because Naomi already old, she cannot get remarried because she cannot have any more child. And she has no one to take care of her in Moab. She lost everything, her family, her security, her provider, her hope. All she has is two things. All she has is two foreign daughter-in-law. And by the way, barrenness is the curse of all curse in the Old Testament. So if you're barren, you're considered cursed by God. So Naomi, Naomi lost everything. She has no hope in Moab. But suddenly, when every hope seems lost, suddenly there's a glimmer of hope. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. Now, don't miss it. Because this is one of the only two times that the name of the Lord appears as a subject of the verb. 
So while, while Naomi is in Moab, she heard that God has given food to Bethlehem. There's now bread in the house of bread. And because of that, she finally decided, you know what? It's time to go back home. God has provided food for his people again. And Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem. Let's stop there. What can we learn from this story? I think when we read this story, I think it's very easy for you and I to straight away judge Elimelech. We think like, Elimelech, how dumb you could be. I mean, your name, Elimelech's name is my God is king. Elimelech, you should know that God is your king. You should remain in Bethlehem. You should not go to the land of Moab. I mean, it's foolishness to go to the land of Moab. But here's what I want to argue with you. You and I continue to make the same mistake today. You and I know that, you know, we are God's people. God is our king. But when life turns sour, when life turns bad, it's very easy for us to look at the grass at the other side and think that the grass is greener. Grass is greener on the other side than our grass. See, every day in our Christian life, we are given a choice. Do we want to live in God's promise or do we want to live in Moab? And let me tell you, Moab is very appealing. Because in Moab, there seems to be food. Moab promises us wealth, comfort, security, satisfaction. And let me tell you, turning your back to God always feels good at first. Can we be honest? We're in church. Sin feels good. Okay, if you're sinning and you don't think sin is good, you're not doing it right. Sin is good. But one thing that you and I understand, you and I know, even though sin does give some sense of satisfaction, that satisfaction is actually only lasts for a short while. Okay? And the best way that I, put, can, I can put it is this. Sin does feel very freeing and satisfying. It's like you jumping out of an airplane for skydive. That feels freeing. Like, wow, it's awesome. Only to realize that you don't have a parachute on you. That's sin. And that's the kind of thing that we do all the time. Right? So when we move to Moab, okay, there is a season where it seems like everything is smooth. Everything seems to go our way. But then eventually, tragedy after tragedy hit us in the face and finally knock us out. And not all of them might be our fault. Like for Naomi, for example. Yes, there might be some of her fault in that. But most of the fault actually belong to her husband. She, he is the decision maker. So Naomi is just experiencing the fault of her husband. But the point is this, that sin always drags you and me to the lowest point of our life. Sin always promised us one million dollars, but only deliver one cent. Yet the problem is, some of us, we still continue to choose sin, Moab over Bethlehem. And maybe that's where you are right now today. Maybe so for some of you, you are at where Naomi is right now. You are at the rock bottom of life. Things cannot go any worse for you. If that's you, I have a good news for you. The Word of God says this, there's a bread in Bethlehem. God has not forsaken His people. God is calling His people, go back to Bethlehem. You might have lost everything in Moab, but that is not the end of the story. Moab is not God's last word for you. Grace is God's last word for you. This invitation from God, go back, come back to Bethlehem. But let's look at what happened. So now they're presented with the choice, second part, verse 17 to verse 14. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I shall have a husband this night and shall bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lift up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. When I first read this, you know what my first thought was? What a rude old lady. I mean, Naomi should be grateful, right, that her daughter-in-law chose to stick with her because that would not have happened today. Am I right? I mean, if you're married and everyone in your family died except your mother-in-law, would you stick with her? Okay, don't answer too loudly. <laughs> but here, Naomi is trying to convince her daughter-in-law who wants to stay with her, no, you should leave. But if we pay careful attention to what Naomi actually say, this is not rude. This is kindness. Let me tell you why. Because here's what Naomi say. Okay, let me put it in everyday language for you. This is what he's saying. My daughters, I have nothing to offer you. Your life will be much better if you remain in Moab. Because if you stay in Moab, you will have your family, you will have your parents, you will have land, you will have food. In fact, you might meet other guy and marry him and have a child with him. So in Moab, you have a chance to live your happily ever after. But if you go with me, you'll be a foreigner in a foreign land. And not only that, but you'll be a Moabite in Israel. And that's not going to go well. Because Israelites hate Moabites. And no guy, no man will want to marry you. No man in their common sense will want to marry you. So if you come with me, if you come with me, all you have is loneliness. And then Naomi argue, there's a custom in Israel if I have a child, if I have a son and you're childless, then my son will actually marry you and enable you to have a child. But the problem is I don't have any more child. Let's say I met a guy, I get married today, and then I have sex tonight and a child was born. Will you wait another 15, 20 years for my son to be old enough to marry you and have kids? By that time, you'll be an old hack and you will not be able to have children. It'll be too late for you. So for your own sake, here's what I'm telling you. This is what Naomi said. Go back to Moab. Don't come with me to Bethlehem. Because if you come to me to, with me to Bethlehem, you will, you will lose everything. Naomi is telling them, they have everything to lose and nothing to gain if they come to Bethlehem. You with me on that? Okay. But it doesn't stop there. But listen to Naomi's main argument in verse 13b. She, she says this. No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You know what Naomi meant argument? Naomi meant argument is this. God is against me. 
So if you come to the land of Israel with me, here's what's going to happen. God is going to be against you as well. And that's not going to go well. You don't want to be against God. So what I can suggest is remain in Moab. If you stick with me, my God will be also be against you. And all you experience is disaster. See, Naomi is so bitter by what happened in her life to the point that she finally decided God is against her. And when she says this, Orpah decided to leave. I mean, can you blame her? I mean, you can't blame Orpah. I mean, because Orpah is smart. She does the math, right? She does the count, okay? If I go to Bethlehem, I get nothing. Hopelessness. But if I remain in Moab, I might have my happily ever after here. So she decided, you know, it's better for her to stay in Moab. So she decided to stay in Moab, and we never heard of Orpah anymore. So Naomi succeeds in getting rid of one daughter-in-law. The problem, there's another one. Okay, and this one is extremely stubborn. Okay, extremely stubborn. Okay, this is what she said. It's staggering. Verse 15 to verse 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I mean, did you hear what Ruth just said? Ruth basically says this, okay? Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I die. Does that sound familiar to you? Why do you often hear that? In a wedding. We, when we hear that in a wedding, when we hear the bride and the groom make that fall, you know what happened? We tear, right? We cry. It's like, oh, so sweet. But here's the thing. This is not a word from a husband to wife. This is Ruth's word to Naomi. Do you know who loved this person? Every mother-in-law. Do you know who hates this person? Every daughter-in-law. It's not common for a daughter-in-law to say, you know what? You know, I've been to many weddings, but I never see a bride say to her mother-in-law, mother, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. What usually happens inside the heart, they do not say it, where you go, I will not go. Where you stay, I will not stay. But this is a radical commitment. So here, Ruth is making commitment to Naomi. Naomi, whatever you go, I will go. So I'm going to live behind my family, my country. I'm going to limit, I'm going to commit all my life to you. And you know that Ruth actually commit to the possibility of being widowed and childless for the rest of her life when she commit her life to Naomi? That's the kind of commitment that Ruth make to her mother-in-law. And if your mother-in-law... You're smiling big right now. And you're planning to send this sermon into your daughter-in-law. Okay, and then the sermon changed. How to be a good daughter-in-law, okay? But that's not the point. Because there's something else that's happening in the story. There's something deeper. Because here's what Naomi says. Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, I mean Naomi, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And that's actually, Ruth is making a commitment not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. 
What Ruth is saying to Naomi, Naomi, I have dedicated my life not just to you, but to your God. To the point that even when you die, I will not go back to Moab. I have committed my life to the God of Israel. I commit my life to Him. I remain here till I die. I will not return to Moab. There's no turning back. And my friend, that is what we call commitment. I mean, no one, no one moved to a new country. No one moved to a new country for the hope of a worse life. None. When we move to a new country, we always expect something better. But when Ruth moved to a new country, she understand that life could actually turn out for the worse for her. See, Ruth essentially is given these two choices. Here's the two choices that Ruth has. God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. And that is the two choices that every Christian has today. Which one do you choose? God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. And if I want to be honest, I think most Christians choose to follow God to have a better life. But Ruth is different. Ruth is willing to leave everything behind for a worse life. Ruth chooses to forsake worldly security and embrace God's call upon her life. And that is commitment. I mean, do you understand there's a big difference between involvement and commitment? A big difference. Let me put it this way. I'm not much a breakfast person, but if there's a breakfast that I really love, it's bacon and egg. Any, any, anyone like me? Anyone a big fan of bacon and egg? I love bacon and egg. Okay? And they are a perfect picture of the difference between involvement and commitment. Egg, that's involvement. The chicken was involved in giving me egg. That's about it, okay? The chicken contributed an egg for my breakfast. That's involvement. But bacon, that's a whole different story. The pig was in it all the way in to the point of that. The pig had to die in order for me to have bacon. That is commitment. And that is the kind of woman Ruth is. Ruth is bacon. I know that sounds weird, but in my original draft, I would, Ruth is a pig, but that's not good, right? So actually, Ruth is a bacon. And that's the kind of Christian I think that all of us need to be, a bacon Christian. Not a Christian who's... Okay. It's going to stuck with you for the rest of the day, right? That's the kind of Christian that God is calling us to be, not just someone who just involved when things seem to be good, but commitment says, even if I have to die, I mean it. That is the kind of woman Ruth is. And I pray that God will raise up many Ruth in this church. That God will raise up many bacon Christians. And the funny thing is this, right? If you're Naomi, the moment Ruth says this, where you go, I go, where you die, I'll die. You know, I think you should, if you're normal, you should tear up a little bit, right? I mean, oh, Ruth, what a sweet daughter-in-law you are. But apparently Naomi remains silent. I mean, nothing. She does not say anything, no encouragement, no tears, no joy, no Instagram story, nothing. So they continue to make their way to Bethlehem. And this is what happened when they returned. Verse 19, verse 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was there because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I mean, this old lady, man, she's just legend, right? I mean, you can... So when they get to Bethlehem, some of the people recognize her. Oh, Naomi, is this you? I haven't seen you for 10 years. What's up, girl? And Naomi said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Peter, right? Like, imagine if you haven't seen me for years and you meet me. Hey, what's up, Yossi? How are you? And I said, do not call me Yossi. Call me Yaki, right? That's the kind of thing that happened in the story because the word Mara, I mean, Peter, just call me Peter. And, and you know, like, chill, do chill, light. What happened to you? So what happened with Naomi at this point is Naomi so bitter at what happened, at the pain that she experienced in life, to the point that she's just tired of everything. And she leaves us to no doubt to whom she holds accountable to everything that she experienced. She says this, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. With another word, do you know who Naomi blamed? Now, here's the question. Here's why I want to pause a little bit and think. Who is actually responsible for the tragedy that Naomi experienced? Okay, think about it. Who is experienced? Who's, who's responsible? Don't answer too quickly. Many people are quick to say that Naomi is wrong in saying that God has inflicted her with all the pains. They say that what happened to Naomi is the consequence of her action and has nothing to do with God. It's because they decided to leave Bethlehem, they moved to Moab and marry a foreign wife. And when people say that, I will not argue with them. I say, yes, it makes sense. It makes total sense. I will not argue with that. Every action has consequence. But here's where I'm going to argue with you. There's more to the story than simply a formula of action and consequences. Because here's what happened in the story. God is too majestic, too infinitely wise for his providence to be reduced to a simple formula of action and consequence. Because as the story progresses itself, the author is very careful in making sure to never make direct connection between Naomi's suffering and particular sin in her life. Never. You know why? Let me tell you why. Let's pay attention to Naomi theology. She used two different words to describe God, the Almighty and the Lord. The word Almighty comes from the word El Shaddai, which means God is all-powerful. God is sovereign and He's always in control. And that is the picture that we see in the Bible. See, this is the picture of God that we see in the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who is in absolute control of all things. He's not only in control of all the good things, but He's in control of famine, war, diseases, hurricane, flood, and all the bad things in life. The God of the Bible never surprised at what happened, the floods at NTT, the flood at Sydney, nothing. COVID, He's not surprised. He's in absolute control. There's not a single detail that happened in the universe outside of God's permission. Nothing happened by chance. So when Naomi said the, God, the Lord is almighty, he's saying the Lord is a great God. He's a sovereign God. But then Naomi also called the Lord, the Lord, which means Yahweh, the God of covenant, the God who actually loves his people, the God who actually fulfilled his promise to his people, and he's good. So here's Naomi theology in a nutshell. Very easy. God is great. 
and God is good. So Naomi understands that there's not a single thing that happened in the universe outside of God's permission, but at the same time, this God is faithful and good. See, God is not an ambulance driver who arrived on the scene trying to fix broken things. Oh no, He's always absolutely in control over every little detail of life and He's faithful. That is the God of the Bible. But do you know what's the problem with Naomi? Let me tell you what's the problem. Not her theology. The problem with Naomi is this. She does not have the eye to see God's providence. Because of everything that she went through, she's in such a pain that she's blind to what God is currently doing in her life. How do we know? Because this is what she say. I went away full. I came back empty. But Naomi, are you sure you're empty? Naomi, are you sure you're coming back to Bethlehem empty-handed? Are you sure you're empty, Naomi? Because Naomi's not empty. Because when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she does not return with empty hand. She has someone with her. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she has someone, a daughter-in-law, who committed her life to her. Her death and life. He said, you know what, Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. So Naomi has root. But because Naomi is so bitter, so blinded by her pain and circumstances, she does not see God's faithfulness to her. That root is actually the proof of God's faithfulness to Naomi. This is the daughter-in-law that God has given her. And Naomi has no idea what God will accomplish in her life through this Moabite woman. But isn't that true about our life a lot of time? Like, I don't know what kind of pain that you're going through in life right now. Maybe some of you, you're struggling with barrenness. You tried again and again and again to have a child, and you remain childless. Maybe for some of you, you're struggling with loneliness. Maybe you lost someone that you re- really loved recently, and it deeply affected you. Or maybe you, some of you are struggling with loneliness in the fact that you're wanting that special someone, but that special someone never showed up. Or maybe some of you are struggling with a diagnosis from the doctor. Or maybe some of you are struggling with family or work. And I don't know what kind of pain that you're going through right now, but the moment right now in this kind of pain, you feel like, God, where are you? God, I do not feel you. God, where are you in my pain? You feel empty. You feel bitter. But I'm here to tell you that God is intimately aware of what happened to you. And He's in absolute control of every single second. He's never caught unaware. God is too wise and too kind to make mistakes in your life. How do we know? Because the last point, the providence. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here's what Naomi has at the end of the chapter. Look at God's providence for Naomi. First, she has Ruth. And second, they came to Bethlehem right at the beginning of barley harvest. Why is this important? Because God is about to weave together a stories of different individuals, and these stories will turn Naomi bitterness into blessing through barley harvest. Naomi has no idea this time that God's mercy is about to be abundant in her life. 
She thinks that God is against her because of everything, all the pain she went through. But she's about to find out that God is never against his people. God is always working for the good of his people, even when life seems extremely painful. God's providence is his purposeful sovereignty. And that's where we're going to end today. Okay, I thought you were going to end with cliffhanger. <laughs> but let me sum up the chapter for you. It means this. Just because we cannot see God's providence, it does not mean that God is not working. God's providence is always the defining element of our life. See, whether we're in pain right now because of the consequence of our own action or because we suffer from no explainable reason, pain is never easy. So I'm not trying to downplay your pain. And, but like Naomi, what a lot of them happen is this. In pain, we are blind to God's work in our life. We are so busy complaining to God, God, I am empty. God, I don't have anything. God, you take away everything from me to the point that we forgot that we have root next to us. See, what Naomi and we need to understand is this, that we're not empty. We have Ruth. When Ruth commits her life to Naomi, Ruth knows that Naomi will die without her. There's nothing that Naomi can do. She's old. She cannot work. She cannot provide for herself. So she needs someone to work for her and provide for her. So Ruth knows that if she chooses to keep her life, Naomi will die. But Ruth knows if she voluntarily gave her life, Naomi will get hers. Ruth understands if she leaves everything behind, if she leaves her family, her wealth, her land, her food, her future, Naomi will have hers. But if Ruth chooses her own future, Naomi will lose everything. In the midst of Naomi's bitter experience, she receives Ruth's loyalty. Ruth is a sign of God's faithfulness to Naomi. Here's the question for you and me. Do we know that we have someone better than Ruth today? I mean, do we know that we have someone who did everything that Ruth does for Naomi? We have Jesus. I mean, just like Ruth, Jesus knew that the only way for us to keep our life is for him to give his life away for us. And Jesus made that radical commitment. He gave up all he had. He left the glory of heaven. He left heaven. He clung unto us. And he committed to us. Ruth said to Naomi, Naomi, where you die, I will die. Jesus said to us, I die so you don't have to die. And Jesus committed his life, his life to us in such a way that even death will not be able to separate us from the love of Christ. See, that's the kind of root that we have. We have Jesus. So you might feel empty, but the good news is, my friend, you're not empty. You have Jesus. We may have no idea what God is up to, but we have Jesus. And understand this. When we have Jesus with us, we can have the confidence that pain will not have the last word over our life. Grace will have the last word. Let me close with this. This is a lyric from an old hymn called God, will, God Move in a Mysterious Way. Next slide, you. Says this God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in our searchable minds of never failing skill, 
He treasure up His right design and work His sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And my friend, that is God's providence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for we have a God who not only tell us that he, You love us, but we have a God who's fully committed to us. That You committed to us to the point of death, even death at the cross. So we know that no matter what kind of circumstance that we're going through right now, no matter what kind of pain we endure right now, that we are never, never alone. As root as Naomi has root, we have the greater root with us, and we have You, Jesus. So God, I don't know what kind of pain, what kind of struggle that we're going through right now. But what I'm, one thing that I do know is that you never leave us on our own. There's not even one millisecond, Lord, that where our life is outside of your sovereign control. That you are always working for our good. That your sovereignty is a purposeful sovereignty. So help us to embrace that. Help us to look to you, Jesus, in the times of struggle when we can't see anything because the pain is too much, help us to see that we have you. We have your love. And we have the cross of Jesus Christ as proof of your love. And I pray that it will encourage us to understand and know that no matter what kind of pain we're going through right now, our pain does not have the last word of our life. Your grace has the last word of our life. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.